This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Right, come with me please this morning to, guess where? Ephesians chapter 4. We've been at this a little while because we've had some interruptions, good interruptions, different speakers coming through and so forth, and, uh, but we're back again this morning. I will read a, a few verses together first of all. So Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writing says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to what worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But each one of us, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Let's just stop there. That's as far uh, as we want to go uh, this morning. So as we continue uh, to look at Paul's letter to these Ephesian believers, I want you to notice that as we begin chapter 4, there is a change of tone. Now it's covered a lot of distance in the first three chapters regarding our position in Christ. And he revealed to them the mystery that was hidden in God before the world began, uh, principally that God would head up all things in heaven and on earth in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we today are, spiritually speaking, sitting with him in heavenly places in Christ. That we have been predestined, elected, We've been sealed with the Spirit. We have been made a family member. We have been adopted into the family. We are a new man in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, we have received the unsearchable riches of Christ. We have an eternal future and much, much, much more that he covered in those first three chapters. Now, all of that speaks very loudly of our position in Christ. But now he changes tack now he wants to talk about our practice in Christ. And so he goes from doctrine to duty. Belief always affects behavior. Always. And Paul was very well aware of this. And what God has worked into our lives, we must work out of our lives. He writes to the church at Philippi, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do 
for his good pleasure. So what God has worked into us, then it's our duty, and it should be our practice then to work that out of us, that there has to be a demonstration of that. Paul was a stickler for this. Faith and works go together. One is the root, the other is the fruit. And you'll see this pattern if you read many of Paul's epistles. For instance, in Romans, the first 11 chapters is basically Christian doctrine. But then the next four chapters uh, is basically our duty <coughs> as Christians, how we should live and so forth. And so the first 11 chapters then is duty, or, or the, is doctrine, the rest is duty. The first 11 chapters, we could say, is positional truth. And the next four chapters is practical truth. And if you read Romans, you'll get that. And if you read in Philippians and in Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, then you'll see that pattern. Usually, when he's writing to a church, he begins with doctrine, and then he goes on to duty after that. What God works into us, then he wants to see that working out of us. And so the life Christ has put within us must be seen in our lifestyle. If we truly believe that God has put within us the wonderful truth that he is sharing with us in these first three chapters, then there should be a reflection of that in each of our lives. If good worship on Sunday doesn't translate into good works on Monday, then something is really missing in our Christian experience. And therein lies the problem with us many times. We either try to live the Christian life with full knowledge of its doctrines, but no corresponding lifestyle that deals with that. Or else we try to live a Christian lifestyle without the knowledge of the very truths that we should know that should change us and we make up our own lifestyle as Christians. And that's why you get many Christians who are living a life that's not really biblical or scriptural because they made it up in their head, because they don't know the scriptural truth. They don't know how to live scripturally because they don't know the scriptures. And both of those are wrong. And so one is either we know a lot about scripture, but it's just head knowledge, and we end up just being hypocrites because we don't live it. Or else, we don't know anything much about doctrine and scripture, and we just try to live however we like, and that just stumbles everybody around us. It puts people off being a Christian altogether. So obviously both are wrong. And Paul here, in his letters, particularly in Ephesians, he's trying to, he's trying to make this good. He's trying to settle the issue. He's trying to get us balanced in our life. And so... In these first six verses then, Paul begins to talk about unity. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, he takes that thought and then he expounds on that. He says, now I want you to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, but here's how to do it. And so Christianity is a very practical thing. And it ought, to be it ought to be something that we can work in our lives, that comes out in our lives, in our daily lives. So how then can we keep this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How, do, how does that work out in a practical way? Well, first of all, he says, walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. Now, 
we've all heard the phrase, I'm sure, he or she was a worthy opponent. It could do with maybe two athletes or two boxers in a ring or could two contestants in a game show or two politicians debating and they're quite evenly matched and one is a worthy opponent of the other. And so there's a, what we're saying, there's a good balance between these two contestants. So if we know our position in Christ and if we practice the Christ life, then there will be a good balance in the Christian life and we will walk worthy of our calling. If we're ever going to walk worthy of our calling, we need to know what we believe and then we need to live what we believe because otherwise we're hearers, we're not doers. And that's what puts the world off, isn't it? That's what they call hypocritical. So we need to watch that and get the balance between the two. What worthy of your calling with lowliness? I suppose you could substitute the word humility for lowliness. Now understand, and, uh, let me remind you again, that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. So he's writing in the context of the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, humility, lowliness was not something that was lauded. It was something that was looked down upon, that was frowned upon. In that world, you had to project yourself. You had to be confident and super confident. You had to be bold and brazen. So humility and lowliness was not something that Greeks or Romans like very much. That wasn't their character. That wasn't their nature. In fact, that was the very opposite. And remember that Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, by and large, he's writing to Christian slaves who were already in a very lowly position in society. They were right at the bottom rung of society. And so here he's telling them to live this way in lowliness, in humility. Don't copy the world. Don't be proud and brazen like the world. Be lowly and humble. He writes to the church at Philippi, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, each esteem others better than himself. That's not what we see today. This is counterculture, isn't it? And Paul's writing to Christians to telling them to live counterculturally. Don't be like those around you. Act differently. You are different, so act different. And it's no different than the generation we live in today. To be Christians, we've got to act and live counterculturally. We're counter this culture. It's the opposite way we live than this culture. <coughs> That's why we're different. Romans 12 and 10, in honor, giving preference to one another. You don't see much of that today. It's every man for himself, isn't it? Do him before he does you. That's the mantra today. But not so in the Christian church. Not so among believers. This is what Paul said. So what worthy of your calling with lowliness and gentleness. Now gentleness is not weakness, but it's meekness. It takes a lot of strength to be gentle and meek. 
when you might otherwise be tempted to be combative and angry and offensive and debative. Because <laughs> there's lots of opportunities to be like that. They happen to us regularly. And it takes a lot of inner strength in the face of that to be gentle. A soft answer turns away wrath. It takes a lot of strength to give a soft answer when you want to be angry and you want to lash out, doesn't it? And that's the challenge for every one of us, me included. We're all in this together. And so in Matthew 11, Jesus said, verse 28, 29, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. Now let me add a caveat to that. Because Jesus, when he needed to be, and almost always it was when dealing with the religious hypocrites, he was very, very strong and used quite strong language. And when he needed to be angry, righteously angry, he was. Remember he drove the money changers out of the temple? Remember he says, go tell that fox, Herod? I should preach that sometimes about the other side that we don't talk much about Jesus. They got. But generally, working with everyday people, he was gentle. And he was meek. And he was kind. And he was compassionate. What worthy of your calling with lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, with patience, with perseverance? Aren't you glad that God was long suffering with us? Aren't you glad that He was very, very patient with us? Some of us, He waited a long time for us to surrender to Him. Some of us fought against him for a long time. But he didn't cast us away. He didn't throw us out. He was patient. He persevered. He was long-suffering. 2 Peter 3 and 9 talks about the long-suffering of God. Not willing that anyone should perish, but was long-suffering towards us. And one of the reasons that God is delaying the coming of his son again to this earth is because he's, he's patient. He's long-suffering with this world. And he wants men and women to be saved. And he's given every opportunity. But one day the time will come when he'll say, that's it. That's it. My son's coming. Ready or not, he's coming. And then it says, bearing with one another in love. Now remember, he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to the world here. Bearing with one another in love. Has a Christian brother or sister ever hurt you? Ever lied about you? Ever gossiped about you and maligned your reputation and your character? And you expect it more from a Christian and you believe that a Christian ought to know better than that. You expect them to act more wisely, but they didn't. So what did you do? 
did you bear with him or her in love? Or did that old flesh rise up and you lashed out in anger to justify yourself, to defend yourself? Hmm. Remember Paul preaching last week, talked about Saul and David and how Saul threw spears at David, but David didn't pick up the spears and throw them back at him. And we're so tempted to do that. And when somebody throws a spear at us, we want to throw it right back. And hope our aim's better than their aim. But Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Putting up with it. Basically, that's what it means. It's not within our nature to put up with it. Sure it's not. Sure it's not. It's not within our flesh, is it? We immediately want to retaliate. And we're all like that. But Paul here is trying to tell us that what God has put into us, all the attributes, all the graces, that that's what needs to come out of us. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice he says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. So this is something that we already have by the Holy Spirit in us. It's not something we're trying to get that we don't have. It's something we're trying to keep that we do have. And there is a difference. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we might be one even as he and the Father are one. And that's part of his great prayer for the church, John 17. And so this unity is important to Christ and it's important to his church. And that's why the enemy of our souls will always, always, always try to cause strife and disunity. And so where it is unnecessary and it's uncalled for divisions, it just causes hurt in the body of Christ plays into the enemy's hands. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't disagree or that from time to time we shouldn't disagree. Obviously from time to time we ought to, but it means that we shouldn't get ugly about it. And there's a difference in that also. That we can disagree and that we can work in our disagreements, but it doesn't mean that we get ugly with each other about our disagreements. This is what Paul is trying to get at because then that just causes strife and strife tears the body apart. Neither is he talking here about some false ecumenical worldwide organized church because unless your head has been in the sand for many years, that is what's happening out there. It's shaping up for that. Religions are beginning to coalesce and come towards the end times under Antichrist and the false prophet. That's what you'll see a one world church. And it's a false thing. And people are trying to make that happen, trying to make that unity happen. Paul says, We've already got this unity in us. He says, Endeavor to keep it that way. 
That's something we don't have that we have to make happen. He says, keep it and endeavor to keep it. So Paul's saying, do all you can to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's why he listed those five practical steps in order to keep this unity and peace amongst ourselves. Now in the next three verses, he's still talking unity here. Verse four and six. There is one body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The one body, of course, is the church, but it has many, many members. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, speaks about this. In verse 19, and if we were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, and that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And so there is one body comprised of many, many parts. There's one body of Christ on earth in many different nations who worship in many different ways because of their cultural upbringings. But within a local church like here, it's still one body, only there's many parts of it. And all of us has got a part and every joint supplies, Paul talks about in the scripture. And so all of us are part of the same body. And if all of us can be part of that body and work together as a body, then we accomplish much more. One body, one spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's in you is the same Holy Spirit that's in me. The same Holy Spirit was in the Apostle Paul is the same Holy Spirit that's in you. Not a different spirit. The same Holy Spirit is in every born-again believer, and regardless of the color of your skin or the language you speak in, it's the same Holy Spirit. Thank God for that. One hope, he says, in Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now what is our hope of our calling? Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The great hope of the church, now when we talk about hope, we're talking about something that's not hope so isn't. We're not wishing for something. We'll explain this in a moment. But the great hope of the church is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great hope. That's going to make all the difference. That when he comes back, everything is going to change. Everything will be different. 
1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Our hope is in Christ. Amen. Here's a beautiful verse, Hebrews 6.18 and 20. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So this is not just a wish. Oh, I wish, it, I wish that next week the weather will be good. No, I hope next week. Will, no, not talk about that. It's something that's sure and steadfast. At the graveside, a preacher will say, and I've said it a thousand times, you say, ensure uncertain hope of the resurrection from the dead unto eternal life. It's sure and it's certain. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord only one Lord this body has only one head anything more with two heads is deformed isn't it there's only one head and that's the Lord Jesus Christ we're just privileged to be part of the body that's spiritually attached to the head the head is in heaven the body is in earth but he is the Lord Jesus Christ one faith only one faith, only one gospel. Jude talks about the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, the body of belief. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe that Jesus lived an exemplary life on earth, a spotless, clean, holy life. We believe that he went to the cross to die for our sins. We believe that he was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. We believe that he ascended up into heaven. We believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father. We believe that he's coming back again. That's the fundamentals. That's the fundamentals of the gospel. And every born-again believer believes that. Now, we differ in some things like when is Christ coming back? How is Christ coming back? How will that take place? When will that take place? Well, we can argue about that until he comes. One preacher in America one time, he was well known at that time, and uh, somebody tried to get him into an argument about when Christ was coming back. And he says, I'm sorry, he says, I'm not going to argue with you about that. He says, because I am not on the organizing committee, I'm on the welcoming committee. <laughs> but he is coming back. And so there's one faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7 Paul says, I have kept the faith. Paul says, there is no other gospel. If anyone comes to Jesus and preaches any other gospel than what I'm telling you, let him be accursed. So there is no other gospel than the one Paul preached. And you can get that in Romans very clearly, the Roman road, preachers often call it, steps of the gospel. And it's a wonderful gospel. The late Adrian Rogers, great preacher in America, Baptist preacher, he said one time, there are many preachers who can preach the gospel better than I can, but none of them 
has a better gospel to preach than I have. <laughs> My gospel has the best gospel because it's the Bible gospel. It's Christ's gospel. It's the gospel that Paul preached. One faith, one baptism. Now, there are many arguments about the methods of baptisms. A lot of water, a little water. Sprinkling or immersion. Adult baptism or infant baptism. Different denominations has got different beliefs on that. But Paul actually here is talking about the Holy Spirit baptized us into the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Christ is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's the one who baptizes us into Christ, who fully immerses us spiritually, mystically into the body of Christ on earth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit baptizing us, immersing us completely into the body of Christ. Now, any, any mode of water baptism, which is a public declaration that we make a following Christ, that we're a follower of Christ, is a public declaration. And any mode of baptism, I believe, should reflect how the Holy Spirit has completely immersed us into the body of Christ. That's why we baptize immersion fully immersed underwater like a watery grave that you're dead and you rise up in newness of life that's why we baptize fully immersed we don't sprinkle others do but we don't we believe it should be closely related to what the bible says then he says one god and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Not millions of God like the Hindus. Every rock, every rat, every frog, every leaf of every tree, everything's a God to be worshipped. Pantheism, that is. All is God. And everything is God. And God is in everything, every tree, every bird, every animal, every, everything is God. And God's there. No wonder they've got 300 million gods. Not many gods, like the Romans and the Greeks, because they all had their gods. And we told you earlier in one of the earlier messages how the Romans, when they conquered a land, they liked to incorporate their gods into the pantheon of their gods. <coughs> the trouble was when it came to the Christians and to the Jews who were monotheistic, who only believed in one God. And then that was even worse for the Christians because believed that God became a man and they were to worship him and put him beside Caesar. Then you can see there was trouble for the Christians in the Roman world, and there was. Not three gods... Not two gods, not three gods, not tritheism, not three gods, not dualism, two gods, yin and yang, two equal opposing forces. One point, one gets the upper hand, the next point, the other gets the upper hand. They're always going back and forward because they're equal opposing forces. No, the Bible knows nothing about that nonsense. That's New Age claptrap. So 
sorry for you Star Wars fans, fans, but George Lucas was very big into that. Anyway, that's up for you to decide. <laughs> One God. Behold, the Lord our God is one God. One God who revealed himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At the same time, it's a mystery that our tiny peanut brains will never fully comprehend. Distinguishable yet indivisible is the best way I can put it to you. Distinguishable as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but not three gods. One God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're distinguishable, yet they're indivisible. That's the Trinitarian view. And to me, that's the biblical view. That's Paul's view. One God and Father of all. And then, from verse 7 to 16, he changes tack again. In verse 4 and 6, he just told us all the things that we have in common as believers. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, he goes on to talk about what we have individually as believers that are different. Because there's great diversity in our unity. We're not clones of each other. We all have things in common but we all have things that are different. And God's a great God of variety. Aren't you glad for that? Eh? Remember how the Chinese under Matsi Tung, remember how he got them to dress exactly the same? Their little tunics, their little hats, their little red book. You couldn't tell one from the other. They're easy to control. But God's not like that. God made us all different. Made us all different colors, speak all different languages all different abilities, all different giftings. And so, he says in verse 7, but to each of us, see how individually he's making that? But to each of us was, giving, was given according to the measure of... Sorry, let me read that again. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so we all have different gifts and callings, which I'll get to later, not this morning, but I'll get to later. When it talks about the fivefold ministry, and there's other ministries as well as the fivefold ministry, and there's other giftings as well as the fivefold giftings. Verse 8 and 10, therefore he says, now he quotes from Psalm 68, 18, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, 
What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So then after that, he goes on, talks about the different gifts. But before we get to those gifts, let's have a little look as we begin to wrap up, a little look then at this strange, strange passage. What does this mean? Scholars are divided on exactly what this means. What Paul was saying when he spoke of Christ descending to the lowest parts of the earth and then ascending far above the heavens and leading captivity captive. What in the world is Paul getting at? Where did he go? Who are the captives he took captive? Now, there are a few views about this, right? I'll give you my view. But there are a few views, and I'll give you these views. First of all, there's a very simple view, depending on which scholar or commentator you might care to read. There's a very simple view that the captives are speaking of all those whom Satan had bound through sin and temptation or sickness or whatever the case may be, whatever way he can bind people, make them captives. But because Christ came, went to the cross, died for his sins, rose again victorious after his death, and freed the captives, set us free from the power of sin and Satan, whom the Son makes free is free indeed. So there's a very simple view on that. Or secondly, another view is that all the powers of darkness were defeated at Calvary. He made a show of them openly. And the scriptures does say this, Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and power, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And that's alluding to in the Roman world, whenever the Romans went out and conquered a nation, the conquering hero, whoever the general was, would come back to Rome with a great, with a great parade behind him of slaves and dignitaries that he had captured and even kings that he had captured. And he brings them through Rome and there's a great parade and there's a great clapping and cheering and waving of palm trees because the conquering hero has come home and these are the spoils of war. And so when Christ rose again from the dead, he defeated Satan on the cross. Then all the devil and all of his demonic forces, <laughs> he has conquered all of those. And he made a show of them openly before all heaven. And there's the truth in that. But I'm not sure that's what Paul was getting at because he talked about him going into the lower parts of the earth first of all. Now, here's what I believe. Here's what others believe too. That every righteous person from Abel until Christ, everyone whose faith was accounted unto them for righteousness, who died believing, who are in a sense believers, until Christ went to the cross, was buried, rose again from the dead, defeated death, hell, and the grave, all of those up to that point 
were held, in a sense, captive in Sheol, Hades, in the compartment or the department of the dead. So listen carefully. Now, in Luke 16, you remember the story of the, the rich man and Lazarus the beggar and how the two died and the rich man went to a place of torment but Lazarus the beggar went to what was called Abraham's bosom or paradise and there was a great gulf fixed between so that one couldn't cross over to the other and for that one there where the rich man was there was no escape and he knew it because he wanted he wanted God to send Lazarus from Abraham's bosom back to witness to his brothers not to come to this place of torments. They had to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. They didn't listen to the prophets. They're not going to listen to him even though he rose from the dead. So there's a great gulf fixed. So what we believe is that when Christ in that three days between when he went into that grave and when he appeared that he went into that compartment what we call Abraham's bosom and there he released them and he preached to them and he shared with them the wonderful truth that we know now why he came who he was this is the one that by faith they had looked forward to for all those centuries that they'd been prophesying about and then he released them he took captivity captive and took them back to the glory. And then he returned to meet with his disciples. Are you with me? Remember the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you want to believe any of those other two that I explained, you're perfectly entitled to that. And some great theologians believe that, and you're perfectly entitled to believe that. I'll not argue with you. I'm just telling you what I believe. My belief. There's some elements of truth in those others. I've shared that with you. And you can put it up for me because he doesn't need it up at all. He doesn't even need a mic. He's like Paul James. He's got a big voice. Small man, but a big voice. Uh, in Psalm 24, if you can imagine Jesus leading captivity captive, taking those captives back to the glory 
in a great parade. Perhaps this is where Psalm 24 comes in. Psalm 22 is a psalm of the, is a psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 is a psalm of the crook, shepherd psalm. Psalm 24 is the psalm of the crown. And in verse 7, Lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Hallelujah. And so here we have Christ, the victorious, conquering King, who defeated death and hell and the grave and who released every captive and has been releasing every captive ever since. Every man or woman that's held by sin and Satan, Christ releases them if they come to him. Glory to God. By the way, let me just finish by saying this. That no longer applies to the believer because now if you die, Paul says, it's absent from the body, it's present with the Lord. There's no place for us now other than straight to the glory to be with Christ, which is far, far better. All of that is gone as far as we're concerned. Yes, there is hell for the unbeliever and one day judgment for the unbeliever and the lake of fire for the unbeliever. But for the believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, the Paul says. And what a glorious way that is that we're going to end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal. Or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.